Happy New Year, folks. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not really much of a New Year's resolutions guy. I'm not even sure I'm a heavy-duty New Year's person either, because from what I gather, Mother Earth and our calendar year don't necessarily always see eye to eye when it comes to beginnings and ends. How's that for a philosophical debate? But that being said and done, I want to let you know that I'm really happy to be back. I've missed you. I don't know about if you missed me, but I really missed you. I started this podcast because I want to connect. I think a lot of experts would say I'm committing podcast kamikazes with these little disappearing acts of mine. I haven't put out an episode in two months, really. Here's my reason. I don't do this for metrics. I don't do this for the numbers. I do this because I want to connect. And I want to connect at a level where you know that this isn't BS. And the only way I can convince you of that at this point is to make sure that the curatorial content is of impeccable quality. I can't promise it's always perfect, but the process looks like this. I spend about a good 20 hours researching people who have a message to say that I feel is relevant to us. I spend a good amount of time trying to convince them to come onto the show, and then I'll spend about 30 to 40 hours recording, inviting audiences. That's something we're doing now, by the way, FYI, if you'd ever want to be audience on the live recording. And then I'll spend another few good hours uh, editing, mixing and producing the entire show. And yes, it is all me. I say that not to Boma and Trumpet, but just to give you an idea about how serious I am about this thing, even if I do do a bit of a disappearing act for a couple of months. The way I see it, even if I drop dead tomorrow, I think the shows we put out there are really timeless. Sounds like a bit of a tall claim, but uh, hey, you should decide for yourself. In the meantime, I'd like you to welcome Noah Kelvin. Um, for those of you into jazz piano or um, online education or just generally with a social media account at this point, you shouldn't have any trouble identifying who you're talking about. This guy's both an online education guru at this point. He's redefining the entire paradigm of how that goes about in a way that's really authentic and Sidegeist relevant and um, organic and just fun. Um, I should also let you know that he has his first album out and you should definitely go show him some support for this. All links to his work will be included in the episode now. Um, there was a lot of resonance in this conversation, something I'm really hoping will come across. So take notes, mental or physical. Feel free to hit us up with questions you might have. Uh, that's kind of the whole point. Guess who else? has a new EP coming out. That will be yours truly. It's called Sepia. It was recorded live in front of a micro audience in the midst of a lockdown. And um, I'm going to be including links to that as well. There's a pre-save link for now on this episode, but it releases 7th January. So um, down the line, I'm going to include other links to you know the best way to keep in touch with me for those of you um, who are interested is really my mailing list it's a medium i take really seriously i write out those mails myself i don't have a marketing manager and i'm going to try and keep that um that way as long as i can that's really the best way you know it's always me and i'm sharing um, whatever i'm sharing not because i'm trying to get metrics happening but because it's um, truly what is on my mind Okay, you will forgive my blabbing. I've been away for a while, so I really 
I need to get some of that stuff off my chest. Um, Happy New Year, y'all. It's great to be back. And without much further ado, please welcome the very brilliant Noah Kelman. Hello, fellow beings. Welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. I usually keep video off since this is audio only, which is my way of contributing to lesser screen time. So is that okay with you? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Excellent. Again, going on the record, Noah, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate this. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You embody a very, in in my opinion, a very specific uh, brand of newer musicians who are bridging and blurring lines between educator and performing artist. And um, I usually start off by reminiscing on my first memory of uh, the guests I usually invite, which... uh, in our case, has been completely online. I actually don't remember the first time I came across your work, except at some point it was all over the place and it was hard to miss. <laughs> so maybe you can take us through um, how it all began. Um, do we agree with my vision of what I just shared with you, of you know, blurring those lines between performing and teaching artists? And how, how did that happen for you? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And... Whether or not I agree is also a question that I myself would have to consider. But what I will say is that, you know, I was always very much trained as a performer and always expected myself to be a performer. So my initial goal as a musician was essentially to be the absolute best performer that I could ever be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with that in mind, I didn't necessarily expect, at least in the first part of my life, to be an educator, despite the fact that I had been so incredibly influenced and inspired by educators throughout my life. And I think that what really happened was, you know, to to spare your audience the the whole classic long history of my life, um, essentially what happened was, you know, I got really deep into performance I got a bit disillusioned with performance Mm -hmm. because I realized that I was so deep into it that I was almost more in it for the competition and impressing my peers than I was in it for really creating something for an audience that, you know, creating something from the heart that people who I would really want to connect with would be able to connect with. And so... Beautiful. Completely accidentally, I ended up basically, well, let me rephrase. I I ended up switching out of a jazz major in school and doing arts management, which was a very different kind of breath of fresh air for me, just not studying music for a while specifically. And while I was doing that, this is what was completely accidental. I was in a social media marketing class and they told me to start a YouTube channel. And so the channel I started is the channel I, I still have today. No way. And I very, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I didn't expect this to happen, but I really, you know, when I started it, I started to experience what it was like to have this just incredible community of people who were super like-minded, who like to nerd out about the same stuff. And 
there was also none of this competitive kind of pressure and mentality about it. And so I just kind of slowly but surely more than anything, just kind of felt like I became a part of something and community that, yeah, exactly. A, A community that, that felt much more grounded in honest love of music and um, I don't want to discount the performance community because a lot of that was just my own internal issues, you know? Um, and there are a lot of amazing people who are not playing music for competition. Um, but for me personally, mm-hmm. you know, my journey led to, um, you know, finding the YouTube community. And then I think the period of time where you, you know, said suddenly I was everywhere was when I really there, there was a moment where I started to really take things seriously and realize that in addition to being this outlet for, you know, but kind of educational and performative creativity, YouTube and Instagram and social media in general also could be something that could sustain my career. And when I realized that, you know, and truly internalized that idea, that's when I started to take things really seriously and just essentially put out as much content as I felt I humanly could. And so that's, I think, when some people say, you know, that they, they were seeing me around all the time. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think I certainly would like to agree with your assessment that I'm both a performer and educator because uh, I'm actually working hard right now to being even more of a performer. Um, yeah because I feel like I've, I've actually leaned so hard into education that I've, that I've neglected some of my artistic, uh, needs almost. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I appreciate that assessment and I'm working hard to, to keep that true and maybe balance it out to a, to a good 50, 50, as opposed to what's kind of felt like maybe a 70% education and 30% performance for the last several years. Yeah, I think the world appreciates the direction um, of your career and the trajectory it's taken. Um, I'm curious, though, the word performance, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, it's kind of become a, a box that's been defined by gatekeepers in industry to be a very specific kind of a set of skills that have to be ticked off, regardless of, you know, one's personal view on it. It's always been interesting for me because um, I'm, I'm of South Asian ancestry where, uh, you know, music uh, has always been looked upon as something, of, for lack of a better term, of, of a higher uh, consciousness or uh, I don't want to say something that's too, you know, woo or anything. But the primary difference I always noticed when I moved to Europe for my conservatory education is it, uh, back in India, you know, the highest accolade you could have as a performer was to teach. In the West, it's like teachers were often looked upon as failed musicians. It's a classic, right? And there was a, it was like a cognitive dissonance I've always struggled with. So I want to ask you, like, where for you is actually even that line between being a performer and an educator? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Well, I have certainly experienced what you're referring to, and I do think it's so interesting and so amazing the way music is interpreted and even just valued in different cultures. But I've certainly experienced what you're referring to in the West, this kind of 
you know, this, this kind of dissonance where educators are somehow failed musicians, as you've said. Mm-hmm. And what I can say is that while there were admittedly times where I might have leaned into that idea, right. the, the main thing that has always made me feel very differently for the most part is that where I grew up and the, the educators that I had teaching me, it was interesting because they were incredible musicians. They still are. They're incredible musicians. And as I got to know them better, I learned that, that they weren't failed performers. They were actually performers who had been very much on the trajectory of success, but made the conscious decision that they valued other things in life over what it took for that career success. Amazing. Yeah. I I think that that's so interesting. You know, some of the people that I grew up with in this really just, (laughs) um, just special magical community up in Syracuse, New York, it's full of musicians like, like those that I just described, these people who are not just very skilled, but, very tasteful there there's a unique sense of tastefulness in Syracuse where almost it's almost the opposite of what you sometimes find in in young academic music scenes it's almost like if if I was going to say that anything was shunned upon the thing that would be shunned upon even though nothing was shunned upon but if if anything was maybe slightly shunned upon it was playing music for the sake of just impressing people. And so, you know, I I remember some really deep lessons and moments of actual shame that I experienced when I would approach music in this competitive sense around my teachers up in Syracuse, New York, because I could clearly sense their disappointment in me when I would look at music that way. Um, I even remember one experience that I, you know, that it, that I'm, I'm still embarrassed and ashamed to say, but I, I hope that it has value for people. So I'll say it anyway. Um, my teacher, Rick Montalbano and I, we were sitting up in his studio having a lesson. I was probably like 15 or something. And I remember um, I had found some random CD of jazz musicians in in a community, I, I don't even know where it was. It was, it was just some random state, some random city. And again, I feel, I feel pain just <laughs> re- recounting this story because I feel still the shame of how he looked at me when I told it. But basically, basically, I remember saying to him, "Oh, I heard, I heard this, this group from, you know, uh, I don't know. I'll just make up a, a random." place, uh, Wisconsin or something. Mm -hmm. And, and I just heard them playing and I realized like, wow, I I think I'm better than these people. I could go there and be like amazing, be like a King over there, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and I just remember Rick really just kind of shutting me down and just saying, Noah, you know, I'm really disappointed that you would listen to this music and, be so competitive and compare yourself to it in that way, because that's just not the point. 
Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I hope that that story is valuable to others because it, it taught me a lot. It's a mo it's one of those moments that I don't think I'll ever, I don't think I'll ever stop feeling the shame that I felt in that moment. I, it's kind of hard to convey with words. Um, I get it though. Yeah. It's always been really important. So to be honest with you at this point, I forgot what your original question was, but hopefully somewhere in there, there was uh, there was an answer to it. No, actually that, that answers the question very well. Thanks for sharing that, by the way. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I guess I'm, I'm guessing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, avoiding, um, um, again, for lack of a better term and like an ego based practice of our art, right. And just kind of doing it for, well, more meaningful reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'll, I'll jump in really quickly and say that I'm not, you know, as I've, as I've kind of grown into my career and, and grown into quote unquote, the scene, I kind of realized that competition actually is a part of jazz mm-hmm. and that's not totally a bad thing. I think that it, I think it hasn't always been, but I think there have been periods in jazz history where, you know, coming up as a young musician and showing what you have was kind of the way of things. And I actually, I actually think that's okay. And I think that part of the energy of jazz sometimes does come from that competitive and actually sometimes even like the fun of the performative side of it, the entertainment, you know, musicians trading with each other and showing what they've got. Um, Competition can be a really fun thing, right? It's just when competition gets, dark against others that I think it's, it's a problem, right? It's competition itself is not bad. You know, sports are so fun. They entertain millions of people around the world. They're also incredibly fun to play. It's only when poor sportsmanship comes in. It's when a person's inability to lose and therefore they do, you know, things that are shameful in order to win or, or have a bad mentality because of that's, that's really where competition to me becomes a problem. And so just going to the whole, you know, performance versus education thing, I think, you know, especially in jazz where to be fair, you know, jazz is not exactly the most popular type of music. In fact, it might technically, you know, by the technical term of what maybe the public considers to be jazz. Although I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, you know, if we're talking about classic jazz, however that may be defined, it's probably one of the least popular types of music, you know. And so there are so many, so many jazz musicians who are incredible performers and incredible educators and who have dedicated a great portion of their life to education in many cases because education affords a lot of comforts that just being a constant touring and performing musician doesn't afford. So I think, you know, just to summarize, it's, it's a really complex thing and people have very different life values. And so that's, you know, to say that an educator is a a failed performer is just, um, it's just not true. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, something that people don't understand maybe at times. Yes. I'm totally with you there. Um, our common, friend or um, passive mentor Kenny Werner was on our podcast earlier this year and he talks about how he's seen that whole paradigm changing now that people have in his own words 
you know, seeing the writing on the wall. Now you have PhDs competing against each other for that teaching gig. Right. Th thanks again as well for um, bringing up that topic of competition and the difference between healthy and toxic competition. You know, I kind of compare it to, uh, I have like a very small, minuscule, like a martial arts practice, which I've had all my life. Wow. I'm not an expert or anything, but I've always been active. And, you know, it's it's like well, musical communities and dojos actually have so many things in common. You know, you land in the right dojo, people will push you harder. So you get better. So they get better and the whole team gets better. You land in the wrong one. Everyone's out just to choke the hell out of you and just hurt you. It's kind of ironic that I needed that very uh, physical uh, example uh, to kind of understand so many dynamics that I've noticed to be very similar in the musicians' communities as well. It's helped me identify the right places I want and don't want to be as well a lot quicker than I would have earlier. Yeah, really, really good point. Uh, that's so interesting and actually something I'll definitely keep in mind if I ever get into martial arts. It's... It sounds a counterintuitive, right? Like pianist or musician doing martial arts, but I've always been a bit of a flag bearer for that. I see so many parallels between the two. Sounds awesome to me, to be honest. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, if anything, it, it it's taught me how to protect my body against. I mean, because the piano can be a very injurious instrument as well. When right? Have you had any experience with that? Oh man. Yeah. Where to begin? <laughs> From the start. Um, really long story short, I have a nerve condition that I didn't know I had. Mm. And that nerve condition makes me very susceptible to injury and doesn't allow my muscles to rest like normal muscles. So we're sitting here and, you know, uh, unless you have the same condition, your muscles are, you know, they should be relaxing, recovering, and at rest, right? Wow, yeah. um, mine, unfortunately, on a very minuscule level, are constantly firing because the way the chemicals are moving around is not fully correct. And so, um, yeah, long story short, I had pretty much completely debilitating tendonitis all through high school. I had to have people dictate all my tests for me. Wow. I, well, I had to dictate to them because I, I couldn't... Right. And actually, basically, any ounce of arm usage that I had, I dedicated to piano. And that actually led me to a lot of fights with, you know, teachers and things like that, because they were saying, you shouldn't be playing piano, you should be focusing on academics, if you only have so much usage of your arms, and people accusing me of making it up and all this kind of stuff. And um, took about 15 more years until I finally found a doctor who ordered the right tests. And sure enough, we figured out that all this time I had a genetic diagnosable condition that was causing all of it. So unfortunately, there's no amazing treatment for it. But just knowing what it is and how to prevent it from getting worse and, you know, some medications that help has allowed me quite a bit to manage it much better than I used to. And so I've learned a very deep amount about the body and how it affects our playing as musicians and our, and our muscles and all of that. And, um, you know, I, I don't, sorry, just to clarify, I am not an expert on anatomy or anything, but, 
Um, I've learned a lot about managing chronic pain mm -hmm. and things that you can do for essentially maintaining the health of your body and just the entire mentality that really as musicians, we are very much Olympic athletes of the little tendons and forearm muscles um, that we're using essentially. Absolutely. Wow, I did not know that about you. Well, to start off with, your badass status went to a whole different level. That about you. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Mad respect, man. That sounds like some really intense stuff. I mean, really, I can only say mad respect. Um, well, thank you. It, uh, it makes me feel the opposite of badass, but I, I appreciate that. No, well, it is as badass as it gets in my eyes, you know, to kind of hold that vision and kind of, endure the gaslighting and just kind of stay focused on what you really want to do with life despite an obstacle like that that's pretty badass to me i think thank you and you know taking it to the point you've taken it where you're out there inspiring people with doing what you do i'd say that's pretty badass well thank you i really appreciate that i i have worked hard to overcome it and unfortunately it's something that i have to periodically overcome not something that i just overcome one time but yeah, I've learned a lot through it. And I think I've learned a lot of patience mm -hmm. by, by having something like that. So, Would you like to share some of the tools you found useful in coping with these um, obstacles? Yeah, so I think what's interesting is that, you know, although my issues were exacerbated and maybe even partially caused by my condition, I think that they're the exact same muscular issues that other people have had. So, you know, my really bad tendonitis in my arms was unfortunately extra difficult to heal because of my because of my condition, but I think again it's it's the same thing that other people have experienced especially from speaking with many other people who have had it. So, mm -hmm. um yeah, I'd, I'd be very happy to share as much as I can about how to deal with it, but I think the the most important thing that I learned was that Despite every single type of therapy that I did, you know, acupuncture, uh, taking anti-inflammatories, trying to avoid using my arms, all, all of the things you might imagine, the only thing that started to make a truly tangible difference, um, and that's not to discount the other therapies which are helpful as well but the only thing for me that started to make a truly tangible difference was when my physical therapist started having me strengthen my core and just really my whole body yep. and so this physical therapist had me take the approach of essentially hey have you ever worked out before you know mm -hmm. and I was mm -hmm. like no I haven't and so for the first time in my life I started you know getting stronger not just in my forearms but in my my back mm. and my core yeah. and then my entire upper body and you know legs my legs were a little bit less of a focus in this case but especially the core and upper body and that's when finally I started to see real improvement and what I've kind of realized is that the more strength you have throughout your body, it, it's really kind of as simple as this, the less tension has to come from your actual musician muscles, so to speak, yep. because, you know, those muscles are very much supported 
by other muscles in your body. So essentially the stronger you can get, you know, within reason, of course, the better it is for your actual musicianship as well. So happy you addressed that. A lot of my students or clients will come and say, how do I improve my technique? And I'll watch how they sit at the piano. I'll go, you know, do some yoga first, man. The way you sat at the piano right now, that is not going to help you improve your technique. And, and it's so evident to see that it's years of bad posture, years of lack of awareness in the way their body is connected to itself. It is a lot to unpack, just, just, to, be, just to be clear. You know, it's, it's not the kind of work that gives you returns overnight. But thank you so much for saying that. I, 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 I probably don't, um, haven't told you this, but I'm a severe obesity survivor. So at 21, I couldn't mm. climb up the stairs without gasping for breath. I was 110 kgs and I'm like 5'9". Uh, wow. I almost died of a heart disease at 17. Um, and uh, so at 21, all I would do is eat and play music. So uh, some dark places I've been in myself. Well, your, your badass level just went up as well. Oh, cheers. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's been a long journey. And at, at 43, I'm also a certified uh, personal trainer. So what I offer with a lot of my students who are struggling with health issues is uh, obviously not medical advice, but try and uh, optimize an overall approach that helps them um, figure out ways to use their entire mind-body system into their music. So many of first musicians have had that pattern of using music to as a form of escape from real life and i don't know if that's too tangential to what i was just saying but it was in my case where basically every time i knew i was fucking up in real life i'd go play piano mm. and that catches up point being i'm so glad you addressed that that you know we, we really can't give our instruments the best without pun intended core issues <laughs> yeah Completely agree. I completely agree. And that's really, really cool that you're a certified personal trainer and, you know, kudos to you for, for overcoming, you know, obesity and, and just the, the challenges that you face. Cause if anyone understands it's, it's me that it can be really hard to overcome those obstacles and continue playing music. You know, it's sometimes you do want to give up. Um, so yeah, kudos, kudos to you. And that's so cool that now you're a personal trainer and you're doing martial arts. It's really, really amazing. I don't, I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but somebody who actually works for my company, a guy named Matt Tabor is a incredible body mapping coach. Nice. And so I, yeah, I, I had never heard of it until he started working with me. And so I said, Hey, let's do some lessons. And so I started taking lessons with him and it's really been just fantastic because the whole point of it is essentially, you know, and don't quote me on this, but my understanding is it's, it's all about proprioception, you know, the sense of where things are in your body, your own ability to sense your body and where the weight of gravity is actually supposed to be going. And so it's really interesting because he'll constantly pull up, you know, skeletal, diagrams and show me, Hey, well, first he'll ask, you know, where do you think this bone ends? Where do you think your arm ends? Where do you think your wrist joint is? You know, all these kinds of things. And then he'll pull up the skeletal chart. And in many cases, I'm just totally wrong about where it actually connects or where the muscle ends and 
things like that, or where the tendons are and just understanding where those connections actually are in your body and then learning where, where should my gravity actually be focused? You know, one of the, I think one of the really interesting defining ones for me has been, you know, where does your spine essentially support weight? And so of course I kind of touched the back of my spine. I was like, well, so my spine's in the back. So, you know, I always try to put a lumbar pillow behind my back and sit up straight. And he basically was like, no, <laughs> um, you know, the weight is actually should be in the front of your spine, which is deeper inside your body. That's the part of your spine that's meant to bear weight. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he had me make the classic adjustment, but it, it's something that I only did while I was playing. And now it's something I do basically all the time, which is I make sure that I'm internally imagining the weight of gravity on the more inner part of my spine, as opposed to like the back and the lower back muscles. And it's made me realize like, whoa, I don't have weak lower back muscles. It's not hard to have good posture. I mean, this was like mind blowing for me. It's actually really easy to have good posture. Right, you just right, need exactly. the, gra the gravity to be in the right place. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah, just sitting on the edge of the seat with the gravity more toward the front, which is almost a little bit more in the center of your body, um, you know, a little bit more and on your sit bone, it's like, oh, my lower back doesn't need any strength because my skeleton is just supporting the whole weight of my body. Man, I'm so glad you're saying that. It's like I'm literally getting goosebumps right now listening to this. That much <laughs> resonance. I remember that aha moment, the, the day I realized, holy shit, it's actually easier to sit with good posture than it is not to. And gravity, hashtag yeah. gravity, gravity, gravity. Like, why do we waste that much energy when there's gravity working actually to our advantage if we let it the whole time yep we uh we evolved this way for a reason i think in case anybody listening has chronic pain i'll just throw in a few other quick dealing with chronic pain tips um yes please yes just because i like to spread the knowledge as much as possible when it comes to, to that um so aside from just making sure that you're strong and healthy a bunch of other things that you just wouldn't think about unless you actually considered yourself like an athlete that can really help and have made a huge difference for me. Uh, diet. Are you eating super inflammatory foods or mm -hmm. are you actually eating a less inflammatory diet? So just really consider, you know, just Google anti-inflammatory diet and basically try to eat healthier. That's really all it is. And it can really help. Um, more quick fixes one of the best things I've ever done is Epsom salt baths. Ooh, um, so heat and Epsom salt baths can be incredible in terms of ice for acute pain or injury. It can help to do a short icing session, but then, um, you know, let yourself return to room temperature. And before you do anything with those muscles or tendons, do an Epsom salt bath for, you know, at least like a nice 30 minutes and just, let your muscles relax. The magnesium in the salts actually helps relax the muscles. So that's been incredible. And in, in terms of treatments and therapies, definitely um, acupuncture has helped me. Dry needling is actually, I believe, not practiced in New York yet, but uh, very intriguing. And actually, for me, I, I tried it in Europe and it had some really fantastic benefits. Yeah. Um, I found, I found it really helpful and, um, you can, 
it is done in many states in the U.S. as well. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I'm missing, but I think, yeah, the, the biggest things are, you know, make sure you actually know how to use your body. Make sure that your body is strong, not just your, you know, musician muscles. Mm-hmm. Eat a healthy diet that's not contributing to inflammation throughout your body. Because to be fair, that's actually going to harm you in many more ways than than just your chronic pain. So true. Um, could lead to other chronic issues for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm uh, better at preaching this than at actually doing it but <laughs> um, i think most of us are but yeah. that still doesn't make the information any less relevant for sure for sure thank you so much for sharing that again um um it's also this stereotypical image we've we've kind of been brought up with you know, you, you know you, you hear the word jazz musician or even musician or like rock and roll you know the first image you probably have are people in like smoky nightclubs with a cigarette hanging off their lips and the sense of invincibility because they're just musicians right. and normal laws of health and wellness don't kind of apply to them. And then uh, uh, when you're in the thick of it yourself, though, you realize, oh, you know, eventually reality sets in, hits, and there's always something which kind of acts as a wake-up call. I don't know if I'm sounding too vague now. No. I mean, you, you were dealing with a legit chronic condition, which I'm guessing got you more awake from the very beginning and more aware. But I'd still be curious, what do you think are the most common causes of piano injury? Yeah, great question. Well, I think probably the most common cause might actually be more than anything, impatience and mentality. Because I think most people, you know when you're starting to feel something off. Mm-hmm. And usually the injury, it's not like you're running and tear a muscle or you fall and, and twist your ankle. It's like usually these injuries with music are things that develop over time. And so I think the most common cause is actually ignoring the injury and mm-hmm. not taking the right steps to ensure that you don't develop a worse injury. And that's certainly what I did. It's certainly something I've done unfortunately even with other muscles in my body and because you know i'm a person who just i just want so bad to excel at whatever it is i'm trying to do and so i've developed you know some chronic injuries from soccer you're a soccer player nice yeah i I played in college it was it was great it was really fun but i got a little too obsessed and Mm. and i didn't take my injuries seriously enough so i developed some more chronic injuries to add to the list. But, you know, that's the thing. If you start feeling some kind of injury, that's the moment to immediately assess what can I do here to prevent this from happening. Don't wait until there's actual pain. If you have to take a couple of days off, take a couple of days off because I promise you right now to whoever's listening, I promise you, as much as you might feel like you need to practice or you don't want to take a couple days off or whatever, you will regret 30 times more not taking those two days off because those two days could literally be the difference between a year of chronic injury or no chronic injury. Beyond that, everything else that we talked about is really important. You know, posture, core, and and upper body strength. And then the other thing is, don't ever forget the value of mental practice. That's something I like to talk about a lot. 
you know, when I was injured, I basically went through this period of time where I really thought I felt the competition and I felt the feeling of the competition leaving me in the dust. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, how, how can I do, how can I even achieve my goals when I can't even play at one point, my arms were so bad that my parents had to come in the room in the morning and, you know, other than my underwear helped me get dressed basically. Wow. So it was really bad for several months, so bad that it was at that level. And so I was really, you know, I was down and I was wondering how I was going to ever just get where I wanted to be. And what I realized, which was kind of another one of those wow moments for me was maybe a year later when I was able to kind of start playing again, I realized despite the fact that maybe the pure physicality of my technique, like endurance, for example, had not improved and had maybe, you know, gotten worse. Mm -hmm. Overall, I like even just like the first time I sat down to play again, somehow I was way better. I had improved a great deal as a musician. And that was this kind of huge wow moment for me because suddenly I looked back on what I had done that last year and I realized I had been without even really thinking about it constantly ear training and visualizing myself playing the piano I was listening every night and doing basically visualization exercises of myself playing like as I was falling asleep and visualizing the solos that I was listening to and so when I sat down to play a year later, even though I had barely actually played, I was a much, much better pianist. And in fact, I sometimes seriously think that that year of not playing helped me get ahead of the competition, not vice versa. Yep, I'm totally Because right. at the end of the day, the brain is the most important piece of the puzzle. So true. And, um, you know, there have been various times where I've dealt with injury. I don't always publicize it, but there have been various times where I've dealt with long bouts of injury because of my condition, I believe. And um, I have lost endurance, certainly. Like, you know, if you asked me to sit down and play a, a song at 300 BPM, you'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, he's he hasn't been practicing like he used to, right? But that's kind of the only situation, I think, in which you might notice mm-hmm. that my physical practice at the piano isn't what it you know, has been at times. Otherwise, right. when I sit down, my brain-body connection continues to improve whether I am at the piano or away from the piano. And so my ears hear new things. My visualization shows me new things so I can learn new licks and hear new polychords moving against each other, new dissonance formulas on the piano. And so I I really don't feel like not being able to play for even a month is so detrimental because you could, you might find that if you focus on mental practice, you might actually make more progress than you would have. Yes. If you were sitting down at the piano every day. Yes, completely with you there. There have been so many studies to, uh, that have proven this theory as well. I don't want to quote any. I don't think I'm qualified enough and I can't think of names off the top of my head. But I can completely confirm that from my own experiences. I remember this specific one where my gear got lost in the midst of flights between 
uh, Europe and Asia. And I was at the venue. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> that's the worst, right? Especially as pianists <laughs> or, or, or any keyboard players, really. It's, it's this constant dependence. It's either getting stressed out, carrying your own equipment, or not really knowing what you get to play on at the venue. This case, neither was really an option. So I was just sat there waiting for my gear to arrive. And I hadn't played that repertoire in about a week. All I had was just, I just sat my ass down and literally visualized the entire set for about 45 minutes. And in my opinion, it was probably one of the best gigs I've played in a while. So it, That's awesome. It works. It actually works. You know, it sounds borderline woo-woo, whatnot, which I personally kind of like anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty woo-woo. I, I'm owning it. Uh, but it actually works. Yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, I'm going to do what you said you weren't going to do, which was quota study. So I, I remember, again, with, uh, you know, a grain of salt, a study being conducted on football players throwing um, footballs essentially and, and their accuracy, I believe. So again, take this with a grain of salt. And, you know, they basically studied the difference between players who spent a good amount of time visualizing the throws in their heads, mm. as opposed to players who didn't do that and were just practicing on the field. And uh, there was actually a significant percentage improvement in those who had been doing the visualization. And Again, I might have gotten that totally wrong. So take that with a grain of salt. But a better example might be a masterclass that I went to in high school. It was by this pianist named Frederick Chu. And you could look him up. He basically does an entire weekend course where for the three days of the weekend, students come in and learn a piece, a classical piece, without ever touching the piano a single time. Nice. And then on the last day they all perform their pieces for the first time. Wow. And it's pretty remarkable. Is it perfect, pristine? No. But can they more or less play the piece? Yes. It's pretty amazing. And they've never actually touched the piano to play it. Amazing. Right? So it just kind of demonstrates the clear power of just how much we can accomplish just in our minds, essentially. Definitely going to have to look him up. Cheers. That, that, that makes so much sense. And sure, pristine, mm -hmm. perfect playing. Uh, I mean, th that's, that's a whole different niche almost. But yeah, that, that's, that makes so much sense. Uh, sometimes, I mean, if, uh, again, from audiences, sometimes even if we're not looking to enhance our performance, it can just be a great way to kind of conserve energy and just be held here. I remember a phase, a, a specific semester in um, school where uh, I had a list of 30 different styles of voicings I had to practice and perform for my teacher, like for my recital, which was inhuman, actually. Uh, you know, you could, especially if you like, sat playing voicings all day, at some point it just got, you know, it was not a healthy thing to do. Right. And that was the first time I actually tried out not practicing at the piano at all. And I'm pretty sure that's the only way to do certain exercises. I mean, I don't know if I'd recommend anyone just sitting at their piano all day practicing voicings nonstop, especially if you want to grow your repertoire of voice leading or something, because there's just so many options, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's the concept of mental energy, oh. right? And we 
the idea is we really only have so much mental energy in a day. So true. And so I think that when you're really focused on something, and I would imagine other people have experienced this, when you're really focused on something, you're using a lot of mental energy. Mm. And sometimes that's why certain things you do in your day can take a lot of that energy so true. and use it up faster than other things, right? And so to me, being at the piano practicing all day long and maintaining that level of focus is really difficult, which makes me think there's a decent chance that that time isn't always well spent. So, true. so you know, there's, there's kind of that point of, of uh, diminishing returns. You don't have to practice eight hours a day to be the best. Now, don't get me wrong. There are those who do. Mm-hmm. Just remember, there are also those who don't spend eight hours a day at their instrument who are also pretty damn incredible, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so that's something I've had to kind of deal with because there there were a couple times where I, I did like eight hour practice. Actually, no, I think that the most I ever did was seven hours in a day. And I did it maybe once or twice and both times it gave me pain. Yeah. And... So I just realized, you know, that's just not me. I'm going to get my 10,000 hours in in different ways, right? And mental practice, I tell all my students this, mental practice totally counts. Totally counts towards that, you know, 10,000 hours of mastery. Yeah, hard, hard relate, hard relate now. This would be a good point to kind of hone in a little more on what you've actually been doing as a service to the jazz pianist community all over the world at this point. So to start off with, I'm such a fan of the manner in which you've kind of seemed to have found this organic common thread between so many different jazz styles over the ages, you know, from Art Tatum down to Robert Glasper. You seem to kind of demonstrate a lot of their mindsets and their approaches musically in a way where it all makes sense and doesn't seem to disconnect it which is often the case in jazz education a few years back, even or even currently, depending on who you're studying with. What would you say is the secret to that? How, how, what's, what's the code you, you've cracked there? Hmm. You know, I haven't actually thought about that specifically before, but I think if, if anything, you know, my personal mindset on jazz is that jazz is essentially just our modern day improvised music mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not jazz, you know, per se, it's not one specific musical set of characteristics yep. anymore, at least. Yep. And that's why, you know, you have Robert Glasper who is connecting jazz and improvisation to R and B and hip hop. And then you have um, the Bad Plus connecting jazz to classic rock. Yeah. And Brad Meldow taking a lot of folk and um, different periods of rock as well. Right. And you have, you know, kind of what some people consider modern jazz. And you have the, you know, Brian Blade, Fel- sorry, Brian Blade Fellowship mm, maybe is an example of, of that, right? And, um, and then you have, you know, Aaron Park's Invisible Cinema, which might, might be modern jazz, but, you know, literally in the name, it's a bit more cinematic. You just have 
jazz is no longer to me bebop right and it's no longer stride piano yeah um and and one thing i love to think about is i was reading this book i'm actually unfortunately forgetting the name right now but it was a book that i've really never heard anyone talk about it was just something random that i think i just might have literally found somewhere Mm -hmm. and um I'll have to I'll have to look it up. I want to say it's by someone with the last name Schoenberg, and um, like like Arnold Schoenberg, oh. and and it's just like this really fun historical writer on the great pianists and the great composers. And I think those were the names of the books actually. And in the great pianists, I believe it was that one, not the composer book. He talks about Mozart and Clementi. Mm-hmm. And he basically describes this vivid scene in your mind of the two of them very consistently going down to the, to the pub and having improvised piano battles where they would improvise fugues and other classical music forms. Yeah, yeah I remember hearing And you kind of, you're like, whoa, that sounds a lot like jazz, exactly. right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, today classical music is you know, not, not always. There are some great improvisers in classical too, but for the most part, you know, the majority of people who play classical are very focused on playing what's on the page and really struggle with improvisation. It's just, it's not something that's naturally geared um, in their, it's not something that's naturally focused on for their skill set. And so that's why I really think now of jazz is basically just an extension of all kinds of improvised music because the best improvisers um not not again not all of them i don't want to make i don't want to make a blanket statement but many of the best improvise improvisers on the planet are you know what we might consider jazz musicians or at least were trained in jazz yeah and so yeah so i i really think that when it comes down to finding ways of teaching different styles, it might just be that for me, improvisation is improvisation. And then anything else on top of that is more just like stylistic, uh, you know, stylistic, I guess, vocabulary, right. You Mm -hmm. know, just like teaching a, teaching a language. It's like you learn the grammar and you learn the way that language works. And then stride piano is like, Oh, I'm going to learn like the medical terms, yeah. you know, and then, and then, um, you know, bebop is like, Oh, I'm going to learn, uh, you know, the scientific terms, uh, uh, you know, in physics or whatever. And it's kind of, it's all, it's all English, right? We're just, you're kind of, increasing your specialized vocabulary. And I think that's, I don't know if that's really the greatest answer to your question or not. Um, because I haven't really thought about that before, but that's, that's how I personally look at it. So hopefully that's helpful. I think that's a great answer. Uh, I would, uh, with your permission, follow up with another one, which is one of the things I struggled with in uh, college, for example, which was quite a while back, 15 years since I graduated from a first, um, Uh, diploma Um, and uh, I studied with like a super tough 
German Berkeley graduate who at the time was very much representative of the side guys of music education at the time. You know, you, you want to play jazz piano, you have to be able to play everything. Mm. So my second semester was literally giant steps and 300 BPM, which is pretty much impossible if you've just been studying jazz piano for, I don't know, a couple of years or even longer. I mean, yeah, it's, <laughs> I think it's just pretty much impossible. It's, it's pretty close to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's only so many people who even play that song really well in a way that, you know, actually sounds like them it's it's i mean that's a whole different kind of worms mm. that we should probably not get into and i don't consider myself qualified to even talk about at this point but um in your opinion and i think you're a fantastic person to ask um, because of what i'd refer to earlier on you know no matter what you play it's always authentic to the era and and the style of playing but it's also organic and relevant mm-hmm. for young jazz pianists out there what would you say are the fundamentals that are non-negotiables? Hmm. Yeah, so that's, that is an excellent question because it's actually something that I've wrestled with. Hmm. Welcome because, to the club. Because, yeah, um, I, I guess you're right. Yeah, we've all wrestled with that probably. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think what's really important is not, it, it's actually counterintuitive, but you don't have to force yourself to learn things that you don't really like. Nice. And so, you know, at least to a certain degree, right? Like you should familiarize yourself with stride piano. Mm -hmm. You should familiarize yourself with bebop, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't really like listening to Charlie Parker or Bud Powell, personally, I don't think that's like some kind of crime against jazz. Thank you. You know, I, th- I think you just shouldn't spend that much time listening to it. You can, you can <clears throat> get your vocabulary elsewhere. And actually, some of the, the most influential musicians that I know right now are folks who, as far as I know, didn't, didn't even go through intensive jazz education mm-hmm. and in some cases, I, you know, I don't want to even say any names, but in some cases, people who I'm, I'm legitimately surprised at their lack of understanding of just things like naming chords mm. and, um, you know, kind of like intervals and in theory. And actually, sometimes I'm surprised now, but the funny thing is I realize how much I've learned through teaching. And I realize that even before I kind of started taking teaching more seriously, I had a lot of theoretical holes in my knowledge. There's actually a, one of my more popular YouTube videos. It's, it's, it's embarrassingly recent. And I kept referring to a note in the chord as a 10. Hmm. And um, after making the video, I was like, oh man, what was I talking about? There's no such thing as a, a 10 in a chord. You know, a tenth is an interval, but in a chord, it's always the third, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I realized that, but, you know, I had already made the video. And, um, and it was just like one of these moments where it sh- reminded me how rusty I was on theory because I had just never been that inspired by it up to that point. Mm. And since then, I, I actually love it now. Like, I love talking about chords and, and, um, 
thinking about them, not just sonically, but theoretically. I, I've, I've just kind of fallen in love with it. It's almost like, just like a science and I love science, you know, but, mm-hmm. but it's, it's just this funny thing where it's like, I look back on myself and it was like, you know, I was arguably a very good player back then, but my theory wasn't that awesome, you know? And so, you know, suffice to say, let me, I'm, I'm on a bit of a tangent, but suffice to say, trust yourself, listen to what you love, what inspires you the most. And when something is inspiring you, just take as much from it as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And don't worry about sounding too much like this or sounding too much like that. Because at the end of the day, it's almost impossible that you're going to sound like your idol, even if you're listening to them constantly, because guess what? The tools you're using to learn are completely different. The apps on your phone are completely different yeah. and didn't exist when this person was growing up. The, 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 you know, the projects and musicians you'll play with and the musical uh, you know, things you'll be a sideman in are, you know, completely, completely different. Even just so much of the music that inevitably you will most likely listen to, even if you don't like it, just the things you'll hear and be exposed to are completely different than the person that you are obsessed with. So true. And so there's basically no way that you're going to somehow just end up being a replica of that person and everyone's going to shun you for being a replica. Um, so I say, just, just trust yourself, listen to what you like, what you love. And if you do that, first of all, you're going to be a lot happier and enjoy music a lot more and be more inspired in my opinion. Um, and second of all, you're just going to end up sounding like yourself because you're not listening to what you're supposed to listen to. You're listening to what inspires you personally. So true. And, um, that's what, that's what makes you a unique musician in the first place. Yeah. Chances are your idol would, it would be the last person to want you to try and sound like them and would pre- definitely prefer you to sound like you instead. It's almost cheesy to say it at this point, but you know, it's, it's still so easy to forget. Right. Right. But yeah, but just to clarify, I'm also saying, you know, it's okay if right now all you want to do is sound like your idol. If that's what, if that's what inspires you the most, if you just like listening to your idol over and over and over, I say, go for it, get as much as you can, because it's almost inevitable that there will be periods in your life where you're like, yeah, okay, I'm going to listen to some other stuff now, you know? Oh yeah, that's yeah. Thanks for reminding us of that. That's actually very true. Yeah, good that you point that out because it's easy to forget how important that is too. Just really digging yeah. into your yeah. idols. Who, so who are yours? Well, um, great question. So in in terms of jazz piano, my biggest idol, without question, is definitely Brad Meldow. Nice. I think that's probably true for a lot of people. You know, he's to me, he's really. Um, a huge inspiration of the generation. Mm-hmm. And I would say right up there with him is also Robert Glasper. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of time listening to him and I'm, I really think that what he's kind of done for the genre is very unique. Mm-hmm. Um, same with Brad. Yeah. Um, but just in terms of like sheer improvisation, I think Brad for me is like the, the musician who just, consistently blows my mind even to this day just always hearing new things like his his internal 
sense of harmony is just constantly changing and improving and evolving. And I just, uh, yeah, I just find his musical brain so fascinating and so honest, which is another thing I love about him. But some of my other biggest influences, and these are just things that I've have loved, even though they weren't really, you know, as far as I knew at the time, at least they weren't really like part of anything that, you know, I, I separated them in my mind from study. These were just things that I just loved. So, um, Danny Elfman and John Williams, hmm. uh, you know, film composers, Stephen Sondheim, the musical theater writer is a huge influence on me. Nice. And, um, I would say in the, in the classical world, I basically grew up, I had, I had maybe like three CDs and a CD player in my bedroom. And I think every single night for, for like literally maybe a year, <laughs> I would fall asleep listening to Daniel Barenboim play kind of like the three big Beethoven piano sonatas. So wow. I have a very special relationship with Beethoven and then kind of the classical musician who similarly blows my mind would be Ravel. Nice. So yeah, influences kind of all over the place. I'm sure I'm forgetting, a you know, a hundred people who have been big, big musical influences it's for me, but those to. are the, it's hard not to. There's yeah. <laughs> so many awesome people out there, man. It's, it would be it, just it really not possible is. anymore. It really is. Yeah. Also, yeah. One other one I should say is definitely uh, Oscar Peterson. Ooh. Um, just in terms of sheer, like, just swing. Yeah. And it, like, he's just a musician who I've just enjoyed so much. You know, I just enjoy listening to him. And Night Train for me is like such a monumental album. I just, oh, yeah. I think it really has informed my sense of swing mm. to a certain degree. Um, and maybe in terms of stride piano, I would have to say Art Tatum, even though my playing could never be anything like his because he's just so... I don't know if anyone Just can. incredible. Yeah, no one's can, right? He's so incredibly talented. And then on top of that, he, um, as far as I know, had very large hands. And exactly. so I can't really reach like at least 60% of those tenths. Um, But nonetheless, like, I just am still to this day, he's one of those musicians who I'm just, like, fascinated, like, just glued to the recording every time I'm listening. Just just yesterday, actually, I had a random kind of playlist on uh, of uh, <clears throat> songs that I just want to add to my repertoire. Um, so what I'll do is I'll just have, like, a playlist, and it's, like, recordings that I love, but of songs that I don't, like, know as well as I would like. And... Um, suddenly this one track popped on and it's a huge playlist. So I couldn't remember who it was and it only took me like 10 seconds. But then I realized, like, I was like, Oh, I love like this pianist is this stride is like incredible. Like which, which pianist? Oh, it's Artato, you know, like, mm. and I realized just his harmonic sense was just incredible. So despite the fact that I could never sound anything like him, I think most of my stride ability has actually come from listening to him and trying to, emulate him yeah i think that's a, a, another really important point to make for upcoming musicians or artists in any any modality really you know it's it's all right to try and analyze and kind of dig into people you know are at a 
you know, are just built differently, um, both physio physiologically or psychologically, but still just kind of get a feel for that mindset or that specific physical approach, knowing yeah. that you'll never play like that, but still, you know, to kind of counterbalance your inherent strength. Uh, strengths in Absolutely. That, right? um, Absolutely. Um, it's, um, um, yeah. Um, personally, by the way, I, I, I uh, on a complete tangent, I really love the fact that you use the word tense. Tense? Yeah. Oh, tense. Yeah. <laughs> tense. Gotcha. Cause, cause you used it again. Cause for me, it makes complete sense because it's the difference between, you know, playing a C and an E with your fifth and third finger on the left hand, or you're playing a C and an E with your fifth and thumb. Right, right. Like, it gives me a visual immediately. My my theory professor in college was a bit of a figure in Europe, by the way, because you wrote the first, like, legit jazz theory book, uh, everything oh, before. Wow. Yeah, Frank Hanschild, uh, shout out to him. He used to have, crack this joke, uh, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of European theory, music theory before that was, especially in Germany, it's like very, uh, well, anal, really, about the semantics. Um, mm-hmm. So he'd always crack this joke about, hey, you know, funny thing, I have the, you know, my piano, um, it, it's it's really funny. The B flat and the A sharp, they're the same note. <laughs> so, uh, personally, <laughs> I, I, I'm actually very grateful when I hear someone like you, you just use the word 10 because it gives me a straight visual as opposed to, you know, having to do the deduction of the third being implied to and uh, yeah, I'm getting really nerdy. Now. Right. Apologies. So, no, 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 uh, I, I get it yeah. totally. Um, I want to, uh, we are almost tapering off now. You've been very generous with your time, though. I really appreciate that. Uh, oh, of course. I'd hate to let you go, though, without picking on a topic I think a lot of my listeners would be very interested in. You've managed to take, you've managed to drop knowledge by embracing technology and, uh, well, so well, online culture uh, in a way that's just really inspiring you know a social media is just uh and i'm including youtube even though youtube isn't really classic social media um in the classic sense of the word uh, but i i'm going to rewind a little to what you started off with in the beginning as to how you um, switched to uh, did you say an arts program from performance program yeah arts uh, arts management actually yep arts management and then uh, actually got into like social media marketing. That's another thing I kind of have in common with you because uh, the second degree I went for was more of an almost like a liberal arts degree where it taught me more to think like an artist rather than a performer after six years of very conservative jazz education. Mm. It made me realize, well, there's a whole different, you know, all of this is only relevant if you manage to figure out a way to take it to an audience. And that has very little to do with how much piano you're practicing. I notice how the manner in which your entrepreneurial skills uh, are being used are very well thought out and very knowledgeable. You really know what you're doing there. So my question to you is, how do you suggest, especially in this day and age where musicians and artists are all called to find more and more independence and empowerment, what would you recommend they start off with? How do they best figure out how to bridge these two worlds of artistry and entrepreneurship? That's a great question. So, 
I asked because I noticed, you know, you got all, you, you have the whole system down, you have the kind of funnel tea, you have your lead magnets, you're working on content marketing, so you're not dependent on ads, and then you have your courses, and all of it is just so well chalked out. And also, there's no there's no gap between Noah Kelman, the artist, educator, and Noah Kelman, the entrepreneur. It's really seamless, and the kind of... Of, especially in this day and age with every person's dog putting out an online course my apologies <laughs> you know it's uh, it's very easy to trust you well thank you what's the best way for artists to build that great question so i think you know there's there's no one answer mm -hmm. but i think just to start off i'm going to try to answer this question as best as i can yes sir just just to start off i'm going to say The first thing that I think many, many people get wrong is they are far too focused on the numbers. Mm. And what I mean by that is, and, and by the way, I've been guilty of this as well. I think we all have. What I mean by that, though, really is, you know, looking at other accounts and being like, oh, this person has two million followers, this person has... Um, you know, 10 million, this person has a hundred thousand, whatever it is. Mm. And thinking that that number is somehow significant. Now, don't get me wrong. It is significant, but guess what? It's about 98% more significant if that number is built up of people that you have really worked hard to build trust and community with. Mm. Yeah. So it's much more valuable if it's made of those people than if you had a few viral videos yeah. and people followed your account. So true. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that if you are a pianist, for instance, and then you make a few really, really hilarious videos um, where you're, I don't know, let's say you're like destroying a piano or something, you're smashing a piano with a baseball bat. Not, not that that's funny, but, <laughs> but let's Ouch. just say, yeah, let's just say for the purposes of this example, somehow you make a hilarious video about smashing a piano with a baseball bat and you're a pianist. And because of those videos, you get a million followers it's they go so viral that you get a million followers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i see where this is going so yeah my my question is what value did you provide those million followers and how can that value influence your goals so yeah well, i mean what do you think well i, I would go let's take add another question is you know who are the followers you're going to be attracting with content like that yeah exactly exactly and so um you know what i would say is well the people that you attracted are people who were entertained by your comedy so if your goal is to have a really successful music career and you made these funny videos there's a pretty good chance that that's not going to translate how you want it to. In fact, people might even be turned off if you suddenly sh stop making comedy videos and start being like, listen to my music. Exactly. 
on the other hand, if you're willing to pivot and be like, wow, I'm really good at this comedy thing and make that your thing, that's, that's a totally different story, right? So and pivoting is another thing, you know, seeing what people like. If you were able to make these hilarious things and you enjoyed it, then maybe that's actually your thing. Maybe your thing isn't, you know, just like being a pianist or whatever you thought it was. Maybe, maybe that you can embrace. In fact, if you get a million followers by making some kind of videos, I would probably encourage you to really think about why that happened and see if you, see if you can enjoy embracing whatever value you provided and doing more of that thing. But um, you know, the real point I was trying to make is, you know, I've seen plenty of people, friends of mine, who literally bought followers, right? Yeah. And I even remember telling them like, hey, you really shouldn't, I'm telling you not to do this, you know? Um, or if you did it, I would advise you never to do it again, or maybe even start a new account, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like, they didn't listen to me. And it was really kind of sad because some of the people I'm talking about who will remain unnamed are incredible musicians. And it was interesting because while my account was growing exponentially, I would see their accounts just getting smaller and smaller, mm. like losing followers. And at the end of the day, it was because, you know, these, these platforms are algorithm based. So if you have a bunch of followers who don't actually care about what you're doing, then the algorithm is just going to think that your content is bad because they're not going to react well to your content. Right. As hard as, as it is to believe sometimes, because I know how good it feels to have big numbers. Believe me, I know because it's taken me years to get there and having the numbers feels good. I'm not going to deny that. Mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, I know for a fact that I'm able to maintain a certain level of content success or whatever you want to call it in a weird way beyond people with way more followers than me because my primary focus is providing my followers with value yeah. and never trying to, you know, and I shouldn't say never because I've, I've probably done it. I'll probably do it again, but trying to avoid doing things just for the sake of gaining, you know, quote unquote followers, right? Like at the end of the day, followers should be what you want is followers who are real people who are following you because they like what you do and what you specifically do provides value to their life. It makes their life better somehow. Yes. And if you're doing that on the daily or even just weekly level, you're, you're having people look forward to, to what you put out and trust you. Then when you release a course or you release music, that's, that's not, uh, it's not just something that you're releasing to a bunch of numbers, hoping they'll like it. It's, it's something that you can be confident people will like because they followed you because of it in the first place. Yeah. And so I'm actually just about to finally release my debut album I noticed um, which is funny because you know I've I, obviously I, I love playing and I play out a lot and I um, have put up lots of performance videos on my YouTube but I've never in all these years if for some reason I just haven't like put out an album album and um, really excited to finally be doing that but one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is actually how different I was as a musician before I started teaching so much mm. And realizing that in a very 
you know, indirectly, but very tangibly, my community on YouTube and Instagram and wherever has actually played like a really deep role in the music and the album because their tastes and what resonated with them has really inspired me to study certain things and produce certain types of content. Could you give us an example? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, let me think for a second. So recently I had several people comment and ask me to, um, well, actually this has happened with, with a few different pianists. Um, but so one of them very recently was Thelonious Monk. Mm. And so Thelonious Monk was someone I really hadn't listened to in quite a long time. Like I would say literally years. <sighs> and so recently I started listening to a bunch of Thelonious Monk so that I could start essentially preparing a video about how I sound like him. And actually, when I say recently, this is probably over a year ago that I kind of started listening to him again. So, you know, sometimes my, my posts don't come at, like, I don't just like study something and then put out a video. Sometimes I feel like I need time to really get into something or someone's playing before I feel totally comfortable posting a video. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that really translated into my literally my improvisation on this album to some degree. I don't know if you can necessarily hear it, but for me, um, some of what I was hearing was coming from that. And then another musician who's even more interesting to me, that was pretty much 100%. I mean, this person I had never really even listened to. And it was only because people on my channel were asking me to, to do a video on him that I started listening to him. And that's Lyle Mays. Oh God. I love that guy. Yeah, I did. I did a video on him kind of earlier this summer, but yet again, I had, had really kind of started listening to him a while back and, and digging into him and um, his like triadic harmony and stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. The way he approaches harmony and voicings definitely resonated with me and um, let, led me to really kind of, thinking about that as I was composing mm -hmm. some of the music that's on this album. And so that's kind of what I mean is, you know, the, it was easy to think of the examples of people that my, you know, my community inspired me to listen to, but even just the theory that my community inspires me to, to study, it leaves a mark on me as a, as a player and composer. And so that translates directly into the music that I release. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean when I say, in a weird way, I feel especially excited for, you know, my community to hear this music because I feel like in a weird way, it is also a reflection of them, mm. you know, and it makes me feel good about releasing it to them as well, because I feel like they're hopefully, you know, a lot of them will like it with that in mind, you know, I, no guarantees, but I hope so. And does that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> what I just that said? makes complete sense. Just, um, you know, Music was meant to be a communal experience. You know, of course, it's it's a very you know individualistic experience as well, the path it takes us on. But it was meant to be a communal experience. It's just the meaningfulness of it all just takes on an entirely new dimension when you know there are people out there who really want to know how you're thinking, what you're doing with your music, mm. right? It's just, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It makes total sense. I, I, please correct me if I misinterpreted what you said, by the way. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think... 
Yeah, at the end of the day, really, I, I was just trying to convey that you know we all we all influence each other, and and for me as as an educator with with a lot of people who are kind of looking to me for for content and value, it just that in and of itself is incredibly inspiring and and influences very directly what I personally study and spend my time on. And whatever you spend your time on is directly reflected in your music. And so, you know, it's kind of like if A equals B and B equals C, A equals C, right? So in, in a way, you know, my yeah. the, the tastes of my my community are very much a, a huge part of, of the album that I'm releasing and the, and the first single that I'm releasing. Uh, I don't know, what, you know when exactly this will be posted, but November 14th, Nice. Um, the the first single of my album will be live on streaming services, so I'm very excited about that. Oh, that's amazing! I did not know that. The last question I'd like to ask you: is, Does Noah Kalman, the entrepreneur, and Noah Kalman, the artist, ever feel torn between the two? Between the two, sorry, <laughs> left out. Yeah, no, no. Second half. It's of a great my question. There, yeah. No, no worries. Um, at one point, yes. Yeah. Earlier on, in fact, I was like applying for a, I actually applied for a job at Disney Theatrical. No way. And um, almost got it. I, I think I was one of the final two people for uh, a gig as a, as basically in, in the marketing department wow. of Disney Theatrical. And um, I didn't get the job and then I instead I went to school for film scoring so I was like you know what I didn't get this job I've always wanted to do film scoring I'm going um but um so back then I almost did lean into the more entrepreneurial marketing side um instead of music but I will say that now I don't feel like there's any conflict because I feel like you know like I I really do get to have fun with both worlds yeah. Um, I get to now my music, my nerdiness about music, um, education and, and theory, as well as even marketing other people, which is also a really fun and unique challenge. All of that is now under the same thing. You know, it's, it's all under the same kind of entrepreneurial business goals of mine. And so... Yeah, I, I mean, I'm very fortunate and grateful to to even be able to say that and to have this amazing community that really helps to support me and my endeavors. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for them, honestly. And and yeah, so, you know, maybe for, for the first time in my life, I, I do feel like the entrepreneur and the, the musician and the educator, they're all really the same thing, which I guess is sort of ideal. Nice. And um you know, one, one thing allows me to, to do the other. Um, another thing I'll say is, you know, like being an educator and people supporting me through purchasing my courses also gives me the freedom to create my music without feeling the, the pressure of my music itself being my livelihood. So good. Yeah. And then it also get you know, having my musical and even educationally creative outlets also gives me the mental space and energy to work on some entrepreneurial things actually completely outside of this. I have one other company that I started about a year ago that I'm really excited about. Um, I can't really say much about it right now, but it's, uh, it is musical mm -hmm. and it's something that I've envisioned since I was in high school, but only recently has the technology existed to make it a reality. Beautiful. 
So I have no idea if it's, if it's going to work, but it was just one of these things where I felt like I would feel worse, even though it's a little bit scaring me in terms of the investment of both time and money. I, I kind of feel like I would feel worse at the end of the, you know, on, on my deathbed, I would feel worse not having tried yeah. than having tried. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm going for it. And, I, and I'm pretty confident that even if it doesn't turn into some amazing, you know, successful business or something, it's something that just knowing even my community, it's something that they'll find very valuable and cool, even if it's not like an amazing financial success, if that makes sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so even if it ends up just being like something cool, another cool thing for us to experience and have fun with, um, I'll be somewhat content with it. Sounds fantastic, man. Yeah, a little bit of a rant. No, but. not at all. I'm far from it. Um, I was just really hanging on to every word you were saying, but because it resonates so much. I, for example, I run a, a copywriting business, and uh, for me, it's been it's been such a fantastic counterbalance to my uh, musical practice, because it just mm. reminded me of how how valuable music actually is. I know that I don't know if that makes any sense. Totally. But just having that other space to explore, right? Just having the other space yeah. to explore, not being constantly stuck in tunnel vision, you know, musician's tunnel vision. Hmm. It's just freed up so much space to approach uh, music from a more, uh, a space of freedom, really. Yeah. So more power to you uh, on that and all the best with the new company. Thank you. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Power to you too for, for having outside businesses as well. Cheers, man. appreciate that. They don't even really feel like outside businesses to me. That's the thing. I mean, it probably sounds more um, external to people uh, from the outside than it actually is to me. I actually don't really feel like a different person when I'm writing an article than I when I do when I'm writing a song. Hmm. Um, oh, I, I totally relate to that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I mean, this other, you know, I say this other business, but really it's it, as, as exactly like you're saying, it's really just like another part of the same thing. And I'm pretty sure that my community will really enjoy the results, even if it's, you know, that's what I meant. So true. So it is kind of just part of the same thing in the end. I'm glad you feel that way. I want to uh, end the, this with a the saying they have in Germany, which I really resonate with. The, uh, I'm going to do a bad translation. It says, uh, he who, or at, in today's world, that's it. They who only understand music don't really understand music. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's really nice. Because uh, at the end of the day, it's just yeah. so much more than just what we consider music. I don't know if it resonates with you and i hope i didn't hijack the end of this conversation am i not at all no not at all it brings to mind one story which is um a friend of mine and this is just to just to build on what you just said um a friend of mine told me that he basically was you know he was talking to a trumpet player named ambrose akin musari who is a a very well-known jazz drum player um very influential um my friend was basically kind of, he, he was really nervous. He was actually having the dilemma that we were speaking about earlier. He was saying, man, I feel like I just sound like you. I'm obsessed with your playing, you know? And to this day, my buddy says that this is some of the best advice he's ever gotten in his life. Apparently, Ambrose told him like, well, here's what you should do. Stop worrying about trumpet, put the trumpet down and just go live your life mm-hmm. for a while. Go do other stuff 
And that's what's going to really make you stop sounding like me or being obsessed with sounding like me or whatever it is. So, you know, obviously I'm not directly quoting any of this. This is a story through a friend that I haven't even heard in a while. But um, the point being, I think just it speaks exactly to the saying that you just said, right? Your, your art, whether it's music or something else, is a direct reflection of your life. And sometimes the best inspiration is just to put down your instrument Say, I'm going to forget about this for a month if I have to, and just make an effort to go live your life in other ways. And it's amazing what that can do for your music. Yeah, sounds like a great note to taper off on. For my audiences, FYI, all links to Noah's work, uh, naturally, not that he really needs it at this point, to be fair, but just uh, uh, FYI, all links to his work and projects will be included in episode notes. Please make sure you go check that out. Is there um, anything I forgot to address? Is there anything else you'd like to put out there, Noah? No, no. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I really have just enjoyed this conversation quite a bit. Thank you so much, man. Right back at you. You've officially qualified for what I call the intercontinental drive candidate, uh, which is, <laughs> what I refer- you know, we have guests every now and then with whom I'd like to go on an intercontinental drive with. And uh, yeah, yeah. So congrats. You, you got, you got. Oh, that, you know, well, well, thank you. Right back at you, man. It's really, really great talking. Cheers, man. Cheers. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out in.